0: Praise the Lord, everyone. Praise the Lord one more time. Amen. 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 It is great to be here. It's it's been really cool over the last few weeks getting to see people at church that I haven't seen sometimes in over a year as people are able to come back. I saw Brother Manny this morning, and it's good to see him. I see him sometimes because he uh, works with the school, but his first time in worship, uh, and maybe for some of uh others of you as well. It's great to be together to worship the Lord. Well, this week, I'm really, really excited to be starting a new sermon series, um, and we're going to be talking about the story of Jesus. Amen? I hope all of you love the Gospels. The Gospels are those little biographies that tell the story of Jesus. And uh, for our purposes, what we'll be doing is going verse by verse, probably for about the next year, through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse. And I, I love this Gospel so much because Mark's Gospel in particular, if you read it, you feel like you have a front row seat to the action of what's going on with Jesus. It's less about speeches and it's more about actions. It moves fast from scene to scene. Uh, there's a word that's used there often that says, and immediately the next thing happens. And you feel like you're right in the room. You're right in the place. You're with Jesus. You're with the disciples. You're with the crowd. You're right in the middle of it. And you get to see Jesus this way. Well, Jesus uh, or Mark wrote this gospel Roughly 30 years after Jesus had suffered and died and risen from the dead. And by that time, there were a number of other New Testament writings. Most of Paul's letters had been written. James had written his letter, his epistle. But most people believe that the first gospel that was written was Mark's gospel. There had been stories circulating and people talking about what Jesus did for those 30 years, but now Mark is the first one to sit down and chronicle that, to write out the narrative, the story of Jesus Christ. Who is this Bible as John Mark? We see him in the book of Acts and the individual stories that he writes about than any other gospel. He has first right in there feeling what's going on. And so my favorite games as a kid was hide and go seek. Does anybody know that game? Hide and go seek. Yeah, I hope you know that game. But naturally, when you see young children playing hide and go seek, My, my grandson, Soren, is perhaps the worst hide and go seek. Soren is, is, he's serious about this thing because when the person starts counting, Soren isn't just looking to hide behind a podium. You can see me through that. He's not looking to hide behind this, this keyboard, but he's looking for the best hiding place that there is. He's serious. He'll go into into a deepest part of a closet. He wants to find a place where there's no way you will ever find Soren. It sounds like he's a pretty good player, right? But here's the problem with Soren. Once the person is done counting, Soren runs out of his hiding place, (laughs) laughing and giggling, and he runs right into the person who's trying to find him. He's not very good at hide and go seek. Bro, that's not the idea, doc. You found that good place. Just stay there a little while. But he doesn't do it. The critical words of the person who's counting in hide and go seek when when they're done is ready or not. Here I come. Right. Right. In many ways, that is exactly what God is saying to us in this prologue of the gospel of Mark. It is all about ready or not. Here I come and I pray that we will do better at learning how to live this Christian life than Soren is at playing hide and go seek. So let's stand together this morning. If you can stand with me and we're going to read together from Mark chapter one, the first eight verses of Mark chapter one. Let's go. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Verse six, John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The, the title for the sermon today is Ready or Not, Here He Comes. Amen. Ready or not, here he comes. And here, here's the bottom line for this sermon. The bottom line is simply this. Jesus is coming to change everything, and you and I need to be ready for that change. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word. What a gift. What a gift, Lord God, 2,000 years later, to still be on the front row, to be able to see and feel what it is that you were doing as you walked in Palestine all those years ago. Lord, speak to us through your word and by your spirit that your name might be glorified and exalted. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. You may be seated. So in this section of Mark's gospel, the prologue, there's really three parts to what we're looking at today, and, and, that, and that is this. There is the preview in verse 1. There's the prophecy in verses 2 and 3. And then there is the proclamation that we see from John in the last part of this. So I want to jump right in to the preview The preview of this gospel is in verse one. The scripture says the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. One of the primary characteristics of this gospel that's interesting is that there is always a mystery about who Jesus is. If you read through this gospel, it it is a theme that runs through the whole book. The disciples can never quite figure it out. The crowd can't figure it out. People don't quite know who this Jesus is. But interestingly enough, in the very first verse, Mark tells us who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Of God. And here's the interesting thing that you see in the book. Demons understand exactly who Jesus is, but disciples don't get it. I wish that just happened in the first century, but sometimes that happens right now to all of us. Like when we're in the middle of a difficult time, we forget who Jesus is. Demons know who he is. But brothers and sisters, disciples need to be sure about who Jesus is to live this life. But right from the jump, we get the story of who he is. We get two designations. The first is Jesus is the Messiah. The word there in Greek is the Christos or Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was expected to come in the lineage and the power of David, the messianic one who would come and overturn the fortunes of Israel. And in the first century, they're just waiting for this Messiah to come and overturn the fortunes of the Jewish nation and put them on top again. That's what they're waiting for. They were expecting a political and military savior to come. But then secondly, he uses this other term, the son of God. He's coming. He is the Messiah, the son of God. Now, that term was used a few times in the Old Testament. We see it in Daniel. We see it in the Psalms. There is one, this mysterious character a son of God who is coming and Mark uses it here of Jesus we also see that terminology used in the centuries before Jesus comes in the Dead Sea Scrolls they talk about a son of God who's coming it's a royal title for a conquering messianic figure and actually in Mark's gospel One person that never uses that term is Jesus himself. He never refers to himself as the son of God. He uses the term often son of man. There are only three beings in the gospel of Mark that call Jesus the son of God. The first one is the father. We'll see that next week where he says, my beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father uses that term. The second being that uses the term are demons. When demons see Jesus, they know, I know who you are. You're the son of God. And Jesus says, quiet down, hush up right now. This secret is going on. And the third person in the gospel of Mark who uses that title for Jesus, son of God, is not an Israelite. It's not a disciple. It's a Roman centurion. After Jesus dies on the cross, he says, behold, this man was the son of God. So we see this this preview of the gospel of Mark. Um and we see that there's this expectation of Messiah to come. And Jesus is indeed that. But he is not the kind of Messiah that was being expected. Not even close. So verse one here acts as a preview that sets up the whole story of the rest of Mark's gospel. And now we're going to jump right into the story with prophecies from hundreds of years earlier that let the readers know how Jesus is going to come on the scene. So this is the second part, the prophecy in verse two. As it is written, the scripture says, uh, in, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark launches right into this text, which is actually a quotation from two different texts. One from Malachi. And one from Isaiah. This is something that you see over and over again in the New Testament when they allude to a quotation. Many times it's taken from different places and they put it together. They can do that. The Holy Spirit can do that. And that's all right, y'all. So the first part of this comes from Malachi chapter three and verse one. I want to turn there real quick. Malachi three and one. It says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way Before me. This is important because this is announcing the coming of John the Baptist. And he's the one that we see right after these verses. John the Baptist is coming. He is the messenger. And any first century Jew that is reading this would also put that together with Malachi chapter four, which I don't have on the board, verse five that tells the people of God that before the great day of the Lord is going to come. Elijah comes before that day. And and so as Mark is unfolding the story of Jesus, he's letting people know that indeed Elijah has come. In verse 6 here, he talks about uh, the way that John comes, it says he's wearing uh, uh, th- this this hairy garment. He has a leather bait, a belt around his waist. He's eating locusts and wild honey. He comes out of the desert. This is the description that we see as well of Elijah in in Second Kings chapter one and verse eight. He is wearing a hairy garment with a leather belt. And so the people reading Mark's gospel would understand immediately that. John the Baptist is one who comes wrapped up in the spirit and the power of Elijah it's important to get that now there's another piece here that we see in Malachi 3:1. He, he talks about this messenger coming before him who prepares the way for the Lord and if you drop down to verse 5 in Malachi 3 as, as the Lord comes on this great day of the Lord, he says these words, so I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me says the Lord Almighty. What is God doing here? He's setting up this reality that when God comes back, He's going to set all things straight. That's why John's calls out a gospel of repentance, a word of repentance to turn people back away from sin and to the Lord. And we see in these verses in Malachi, at least three ways that God is turning people away from their sin. First of all, he turns them away from idolatry, sorcery, magic, false religion, ways of, of glorifying God that are not according to God's prescription. Secondly, he turns them away from the sin of immorality. He says, adultery and perjury, those who would do wrong, those who would hurt others, those who would lie, those who would break the commandments. And then lastly, he says, I'm turning them away from sins of injustice. He says, those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress widows and the fatherless, who deprive foreigners among you of justice. In other words, when God comes back, he wants to set things right on an individual level, on a religious level, and on a systemic level to make justice reign in the land among the people of God. This is what he comes to do. Now, the second piece that we see here is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 is what he quotes, but I want to look through verses one through five so that we get the context. He says, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, Isaiah 40, starting at verse one. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. In other words, your sin was bad. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are pretty bleak at times as God is talking to them about uh, the the recompense for their sins. What's going to happen? Because they've refused to follow God. But he comes here in verse 40 in chapter 40 and begins to talk about this comforting word to the people of God who will be paid double for all their sins. They're going to receive now blessing from God. Verse three says a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse four. I love this language. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill shall be raised made low the rough ground will become level the rugged place a plain and the glory of the lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the lord has spoken these words bring incredible comfort to god's people and they they they, they prophesy and proclaim A figurative seismic change in the landscape of Israel, in the landscape of their religion. The voice is calling out, prophesying this change where valleys are raised up, where mountains are hills are laid low and brought down, and where God's glory is revealed. Isaiah uses prophetic language and poetic language to talk about these things. And what is he saying here? He's saying at least two things. The first is this. God's saying to the people of God, every obstacle that is in your way that would keep you from me, I'm going to knock out of the way. If you're in a valley, if you're in a low place, I'm bringing you up. You can make it. If there's a hill in front of you, if there's a mountain in front of you, if there's a cliff in front of you, I'm bringing that down. I'm going to make the rugged way smooth and I'm going to make the way plain. There will be no obstacle for you coming to me. This is the good news of the gospel, y'all. Last week, my wife and I were uh, away in the Poconos at the Delaware Water Gap. And some of you maybe have been on a trail, the, the Mount Tammany Trail. And, and that's a little trail. It's just on the other side of the river in New Jersey. And it goes right up this mountain. And my wife and I, we're starting out and we're good. We're good. There's a little incline. I can do an incline. Then they have steps made for us. I'm like, I like steps. I can do steps. But then it gets the incline a little bit more. And I'm not liking it as much, but I can see there's beautiful views. So we just keep going. But then there's more and more rocks. And and we we stop at one place where there's beautiful views. We take pictures of the river and we're like, we like this place, but we're not done. And I keep saying, I think just when we go right around this next bend, it's over. But it ain't. And it keeps going on. And we get to a place where there are Rocks and it's very steep, and we see a little guy, not much older than my grandson, Soren, walking up them looking like Spider-Man. And my wife looks at me, and I look at her, and we see two guys coming down the mountain, and we say, how much longer is this? They say, oh, it's a while longer, and there's about four more places just like this. We looked at each other and said, I think we're done for the day. In God's economy, (laughs) he's making every mountain smooth. The rocks and the difficult places he brings down and we have full access to our God. Now, there's a second piece here as we look at this poetic language of Isaiah, and that is the language of the great reversal that we see throughout Mark's gospel. There is a great reversal that happens. God brings down everything that is high and lofty, and he brings up the things that are lowly and despised. So here's what he's saying. If you hit that next slide, the great reversal is this. What was always considered blessed is not necessarily blessed. In other words, being at the top, having it all together is not necessarily what God calls blessed. Look at the second piece here. What was considered cursed is often just an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed. Amen. Ask the leper, ask the paralytic, ask the blind man, ask all of those who encounter Jesus and they are the cursed of the nation. And Jesus says, not so. Your malady is simply an opportunity for God to move in your life and show off his glory. Somebody needs to hear that today. I don't know where people are at right now. I don't know what you're going through right now. But you might be in the middle of something and saying, boy, I am cursed. I can't cut a break. I can't make it through. I want you to know that God is able to meet you in that low place. And he's able to bring you up to him, to his place. God is at work. Thirdly, the great reversal is this. The good people are often actually the bad people. We see that throughout all the gospels and certainly we see that in Mark's gospel. Those who seem to be the very best people, the highest estate of the religious elite, the leaders and the movers and the shakers and and the people that got it all together are actually revealed as those who are not about the things of God. But the things of this world, God's going to reverse it. Last thing here. The least desirable people. In the eyes of the religious. Are the ones that God desires the most. The people who the religious elite would pass by and stay away from. Don't touch them. They're unclean are the ones that Jesus makes a beeline to. He goes straight to them. And all of this, as he recounts this prophecy of Isaiah, is simply a precursor to the whole ministry of Jesus that introduces us to the upside down kingdom. I hope you see the power of that. There's this is nothing less than a prophetic announcement uh, that what God is about to do is to turn everything upside down. Here's what I want you to see from this. God's glory is most powerfully revealed. When the lowliest people of the world according to the world standards, are lifted up as shining examples of God's grace and power. Amen. This is what we see over and over again in the pages of Scripture. So we see Joseph, who is ashamed And and, and a son who has been sold into slavery, he's destitute, and yet he becomes the great ruler over all of Egypt. We see Rahab, who is a Gentile, a heathen prostitute, and she becomes the great-great-grandmother of David and is named in the lineage of Jesus Christ. We see David. Who is the runt of the family? He's the little son that we don't even have to bring him before Samuel because surely David's not the one, not that little runt who's out there with, 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 with the sheep, not David. He's the runt of the family. He becomes the great king of Israel who is the, the one who anticipates Messiah. Over and over again in the story of Jesus, we see him lifting up the lowly and bringing down the proud. That's the prophecy that sets up the story of Jesus. And finally, we get to part three here, the proclamation in verses 4. Through eight. I want you to see a few things, uh, three things that happen here in, in, in this section as John is making the way ready for the coming of Jesus. First of all, in his message, the message, it says, is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John comes. He's in the wilderness Giving a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this was different in in the Old Testament, in the Jewish law, there were a lot of ritual washings that people would go through time after time and year after year as they prepared and came before God in different ways. But this is not that. This baptism is a once and for all thing. This is a baptism that is that that goes along with repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is a move of God that doesn't turn back and doesn't need to happen again he's calling people to this baptism of repentance and people begin to flood into Jerusalem look at verse 5 the whole Judean countryside all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River now what is going on here Can you imagine in our day and age hearing about a preacher who is calling people very specifically out of their name with their sins? Who's telling people exactly what you need to repent of? Set up your tent somewhere in North Philly. Set up your tent in Jenkintown or Yadin. It doesn't matter where. Set up your tent and let people know we have a confession and repentance revival. See how many folk you get. My guess is it's going to be a small revival. But when the spirit of the Lord is stirring, God is doing a work. And that's exactly what's happening with John the Baptist here God is moving among the people. This messianic expectation is high and people are ready for something new and different to happen. And they are willing to come out and confess their sins and repent for forgiveness. That's a move of God. Now I want you to see the third and final thing here in verses seven and eight. He says, after me, this is John speaking. The one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is saying here that there's one coming after me who's more powerful than anything you could ever imagine. Think of this. People are excited. People are at a fever pitch going out to see John the Baptist do his work, willing to repent, willing to confess their sins, wanting the forgiveness that only God can give. They're desperate for this. They hear this prophet. They hear this preacher they hear this one proclaiming the news and what he has to say is I am absolutely less than nothing compared to the one who's about to come it had to blow them away John was great John was a prophet like they hadn't seen in 400 years and he says I'm not even willing to be called a slave or a servant to the one who's about to come. He's so much greater. They hear that the coming one will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament talked about, you you can play, brother. The Old Testament talked about the Holy Spirit coming and being poured out always by Yahweh. You see it in Ezekiel chapter 36. I, the Lord, will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see it in Joel chapter 2. There's a day coming when Yahweh, the Lord, will pour out his spirit on his people. But now John is saying, not somehow the Lord up above, but there is a person coming behind me and he is the one who will pour out the Holy Spirit on God's people. They're bewildered by this news. They're dumbfounded. They're blown away because only Yahweh himself pours out the Holy Spirit. But Yahweh is coming as God and man. Here's what we just learned. John the Baptist is the new Elijah. He's initiating the prophesied day of the Lord's visitation and he's letting people know everything is about to change. So friends, as Mark opens his gospel, the story of Jesus, he's telling us Ready or not, here Jesus comes. And here's the question that everyone under the sound of my voice needs to understand and hear today Are you ready for the mountain destroying, valley lifting, spirit baptizing? Waymaking making Lord who has come into this world to save are you ready for him are you ready for him even today here's what you need to understand you cannot receive the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit and not be radically transformed by him somebody ought to say amen to that Dallas Willard says that in the American church, we have this idea that we have something called Christians who aren't also disciples. That's a very American idea. It's not a Bible idea at all. Brothers and sisters, when you receive the Lord Jesus and he pours out his spirit, you become a new person. And he is still steady at work as long as you're inhaling and exhaling on this side of making you that new creation who will glorify him in the earth. And here's the good news. Jesus hasn't just come generally. Jesus has come for you. Jesus has come for you. If you're at home, Jesus has come for you. And as we see this story unfold over the next number of months and weeks, we will see that no one touched by Jesus will ever be the same again. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you today for the reality that the way was prepared 2,000 years ago. The way was prepared. The prophet came. He preached that gospel of repentance, turning people back away from sin and back towards God simply to prepare the way for Messiah, for Jesus to come. And Lord, I pray today that everyone under the sound of my voice might desire to know you in greater and greater ways. Lord, visit your people even today, even today, Lord, even today. Bring salvation, bring healing, bring deliverance. Lord, bring down those mountains that are in our way and lift us up out of the valleys and difficulties we find ourselves in. Help us to cast our eyes on you and find hope in you alone. Lord, we bless you and we praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand together.